Can you be a writer without being a reader? Um, no. We have to be immersed in the world of words. Uh, so that actually means reading much more than writing. And because we are becoming a, a, a culture that reads less, I get more and more students who want to be writers but aren't readers and don't want to read and don't see the connection. Words are a tool. That is our medium. And so if we're not immersed in words, good words, well-crafted words uh, written by others and then practicing that ourselves, then there are few writers that can can be good um, just on pure native talent alone. I mean, I think there, there are some of those, uh, but they are few and far between. I'm certainly not one of those. That's Karen Swallow Pryor. She's an author and prolific commentator who you've probably read or read about. And in the middle of last year, we talked about the books she reads and the books she writes, which, not surprisingly, are actually about books. I'm Aaron Klein-Hanbury, and this is Writers and Writings. I'm going to assume, and I think it's a safe assumption, that if someone is familiar with your work, they're likely familiar with your cultural criticism, your work at RNS, um, books, the sort of work that was talked about in the uh, when the New Yorker profiled you. And yet, at least as I understand it, your day job is as a fairly traditional English professor. So, how do the two worlds of you know English scholarship and cultural criticism come together? I grew up loving books, loving reading, always had my nose in a book. And so my uh, mind and um, being were formed and shaped by imaginative literature. Yet at the same time, I didn't really think of English or literature as something to study. I didn't know in my world that that was something to be taken seriously. And so I actually entered college as a social work major. I think that reading books um, developed compassion and empathy in me, uh, and it's probably how I'm wired. And so I always wanted to help people. Well, I wasn't in the social work major for very long before I realized that was really not for me. And at the same time, I was taking my first college Eng English classes, which opened up to me a whole world of, of taking literature seriously and, um, as opposed to just something that was easy and enjoyable for me. So I switched to it being an English major. And I think now, you know, all these decades later, I can look back and see that those two things really do go together. So I was learning about people and learning their perspectives and learning about culture and history through reading literature. And so for me, cr cultural criticism, which is also actually a, you know, a formal field of um, criticism within literary studies, but cultural criticism and reading literature go together uh, because we're actually entering the worlds of someone else uh, when we read literature in different time, different place, different eyes, um, and examining what they have to say about that cultural moment. And that trains us, I think, to examine our own cultural moments with, um, you know, a, a more uh, analytical and distanced eye. So as those two things relate together, um, and you're talking about the kind of the connection of 
social work and these things. And, and I think I'm struck often with, I work, I've worked in higher ed. Well, I worked in higher ed and still do, I guess, from a consulting level for a good amount of time, 10 years or so. And I've always been struck how in some ways every major is literature based. Like it's, it's very difficult to find like a non-literary major unless you're in like the pure sciences or maybe engineering and those kind of things, but like social work, philosophy, uh, any sort of religion, obviously you're basically, everything comes down to, to reading and engaging, right? Either way, does, does that kind of description of, of your work come through in your courses in terms of reading assignments and things that you're trying to communicate in classroom settings? Yeah. The way that I teach is to sort of, is in the tension of, of grappling with a literary text as a text and appreciating it as an aesthetic object because that's where, you know, the joy is, is found in it, but also in the content of that text and what it can teach us and how it can change us and how it can show us how to live now. And so in the classroom, I do uh, try to uh, make the literature come alive to my students and by um, talking about what what we can understand about our own time and place through these um, great texts that are, you know, have, are great because they speak to universal, timeless human themes and questions. And so a lot of what I write actually is similar to the way that I teach in terms of looking at uh, whether it's a text or an event, um, analyzing it, drawing implications for our own lives from it, but at the same time, kind of understanding the role that language has to play in this kind of understanding. Um, because even the things that, that are making the news the most often right now, so many of these topics still come down to to language um, and to reading, uh, both in its literal sense and even in its metaphorical sense of just kind of interpreting what's going on around us. Um, and so that's how I, I teach my classes. My specialty is 18th century British literature, and I go into the 19th century quite a bit as well because I uh, that entails the English novel. And of course, today, uh, there's a lot of criticism and pushback against, you know, all of these dead white men uh, and dead white women uh, authors and studying them so exclusively. And yet, I think that we can learn so much even from these narrow perspectives about our own world. And, and our perspectives can be broadened even by um, these kinds of narrow worlds like Jane Austen's is often described as one of the most narrow worlds that there is in, in uh, the novel. And yet her insights into human nature and the human condition are ones that apply to all times and all places. And so I think we can, we can draw those out at the same time that we can also be honest uh, and face the limitations of, of those visions and those experiences. Yeah. I've often found, and this is not without exception, that some of the harsher critics of Austin tend to not be readers of Austin. There's a Downton Abbey-esque perception of of that world, I think, as quaint and sedated that doesn't necessarily match up with the stories um, that you read, particularly from, from, I wouldn't even call them critics, from male readers. I think often there's a lack of willingness to enter the female mind that is easier to just default to stupid takes. Yeah, I think a lot of that misperception of Austin comes from the film adaptations, which 
simply cannot capture um, the satirical voice that the novels are written in and, and all of the drama is in the satire. So if you aren't reading Jane Austen, then you don't understand Jane Austen. There's a perception that reading is a very um, individualistic and um, lonely thing. And that's probably true to certain extents. But I think there's another extent in, to which um, engaging a text is really one of the only ways that we can enter public life in the same way that, I mean, the Harry Potter novels are a great example. Really, in my lifetime, there probably hasn't been a more shared text than those where pretty much anywhere you go in the U.S. at least, people are familiar with those stories and they know them. And so they provide, you know, language and ideas and context uh, in a way that just don't before. Or maybe even the in the earlier parts of the last century, like a John Wayne movie or something in a way that entertainment bifurcated later and there's not quite as much shared text. And so either way, when we talk about this idea of like entering public life, whether it's, you know, your writing or this idea of cultural criticism or public discourse, whatever that actually means, um, it seems to me that like giving attention to reading is one of the only ways we can do that meaningfully. Not unlike when you and I were just discussing Lydia Millet and immediately there's a connection with that novel of knowing a universe and a world and provides context for how we can discuss. And then if we were to press into that, these various um, shades of ethical questions or even kind of ontological questions that arise there um, that we could pursue or not pursue. I think the idea of reading as a very individual solitary activity is a very modern idea. Um, of course, in pre-literate cultures, we know with epic literature and poetry and philosophy and even Shakespearean drama, that those were uh, very publicly performed texts that the whole community partook of in some way. And then when we enter the modern age and it brings widespread literacy and also uh, the rise of the novel, then reading becomes seemingly more isolated, more individual, more solitary. And, and there's a whole body of scholarship around um, that and the anxieties around uh, that kind of uh, individual's reading and, and, the, and the solitary nature of it. But at the same time, we look at uh, you know, the, the novel that's considered the first in the sort of official history of, of the novel that Samuel Richardson's Pamela published in uh, the middle of the 18th century, the early 18th century. I mean, there were public readings of the novel given and, and the church bells rang at a ce celebratory moment in the novel. And so even even the novel, which has come to be associated with solitary reading, is something that was was communal. But I think, you know, I think that individualized idea has continued throughout the modern age. And now as we reach late modernity, we are seeing a return to kind of a communal experience to reading, just talking about the way there's a blurred distinction between the film adaptations and the, the actual novels, as we talked about with Jane Austen and, of course, Harry Potter, the same is true. So I think reading has become more obviously communal. And there are uh, benefits to that. And there are also, I think, some disadvantages. I'm, I'm reading um, Tara Burton's Strange Rights right now, and she is making a fascinating and brilliant connection between Harry Potter fandom 
and the polarization and division and tribalism that we see on the internet in political and ideological and Christian factions, religious factions. Um, and so there's some interesting uh, repercussions, I think, for what we think about reading and, and how we read, and then how we apply that reading to our lives, whether publicly or privately. So this is actually a, something I'm also thinking a lot about lately, um, just because we're, with the digital age, we're seeing reading become something different, uh, much more personalized and bespoke, uh, which I think can actually end up diminishing our ability to read well, which is something that I obviously care about. But it also does open up some possibilities, too, I think. Do you teach writing courses? I'm sure you have. I put in my years teaching uh, freshman composition, of course, and then I did develop a course on uh, writing for cultural engagement. So um, I don't teach creative writing, but I've taught, you know, kind of the expository writing. So if you're a literary type, I'm sure you get this all the time. There is this craving among others to want like tips or like, how do I get better at? And I think even from established writers, you're, you know, you're always looking for what is the this or that that I can do to get better. Writing books are overflowing in any bookstore. Um, I mean, on my own shelves, I, I, yeah, I'm a sucker for like, oh, if I read this, then that's like the it turns on the, the, the writing thing and I'm done with it. I've also read some research around reading and development by implication writing that shows that maybe it's a little more um, born than taught. And obviously, I think we've all had the experience who've been in the space of you can correct someone's grammar and their structure and maybe even get them to enliven some verbs, but that doesn't necessarily make good writing. And there's just something there. So I guess my question is, when when you think about teaching writing, what are you trying to do? Um, and then I guess by implication, is it possible? What can we reasonably expect someone to do with um, writing instruction? Yeah, I mean, of course, doing um, expository writing has more rules, I guess, to follow, more tips or, and so forth. And so it's often just a matter in teaching writing and you you can you have to teach, you know, what to do, what not to do, what works, what doesn't work. Um, but beyond that, it really is just practice and skill. And, you know, that, that skill may be a great deal born or not born. That's a big part of it. But I think even more important than all that, I and it's just, it's getting harder and harder for people to see this, but we have to be immersed in the world of words. Uh, so that actually means reading much more than writing. And because we are becoming a, a culture that reads less, um, I get more and more students who want to be writers but aren't readers and don't want to read and don't see the connection. Um, but words are our tool. That is what that that is our medium. And so if we're not immersed in words, good words, well-crafted words uh, written by others, and then practicing that ourselves, then there are few writers that can can be good um, just on pure native talent alone. I mean, I think there, there are some of those, uh, but they are few and far between. I'm certainly not one of those. And so in teaching writing, and it's probably true of creative writing, 
as well to a certain degree. Um, it's a matter of teaching the things that work and don't work. And sometimes that's just sort of the rules and structures, and which of course can be broken when you understand how to break them effectively. Um, but then just treating it as a practice and a craft. Um, and there are so many mindsets uh, that I see brought to writing, like that it's, it's inspired and that, you know, whatever comes out on the page, you just tweak it once and then it's done. And so I think probably the thing that I emphasize more than anything is just how much revision is necessary. I mean, writing is revision, revising over and over and over. And revision isn't just editing, although that's important too, but it really is um, like working with clay you know, just squeezing and molding and shaping and sometimes breaking it and starting all over again. I think we understand that when it comes to other kinds of crafts and arts. But for whatever reason, when it comes to writing, people think that if we know the language, then then we can be a writer. Um, and we can't do that any more than, you know, just knowing how to walk makes me a dancer. <laughs> so... Mitch Hedberg has a joke about that, how comedians are always asked if they can act like you're a stand-up comedian. And for some reason, they're, they want to know if you can be in a sitcom. And he, he says it's, it's like asking a, like a chef if they can farm. He's like, a, there's like some connection there, but it's just what, what's the, what is it? Yeah. I, so I have a thing that I tell people a lot and it always, you know, when you, you know, when you can say something to somebody and you can just tell they have like X's over their eyes, like it's just not computing. I will tell people that I think they should, and you may disagree with this, obviously, but that they should try to finish a draft of a piece of writing in about 45 minutes or so, like just sit down and get things on the page. And it's almost always met with these blank stares. Like, what are you even talking about? And I'll follow it with something like, you know, if you can do 45 minutes an hour and get something out there, then you've got, you know, then you can spend three or four days or some weeks working on it. And I, I think even as a category, that's such a, uh, mind-blowing suggestion that that would even be the pattern for writing and then of course you hear ridiculous things like well i edit as i go um which I, is my least favorite thing to hear anybody say or when they ask for a tip which everybody wants tips and then you say something and they say well i tend to do it like this and you think why did you approach me open your mouth and say some words then like if we already established how your writing style yeah i think that you know this is maybe a, a not a very pleasant metaphor but i think that writing workshops and conferences and classes are a lot about how the sausage is made, but we can't even make the sausage without having the farms where the animals are raised, right? And so that's the part we skip is how do you how do you raise all of these beings in your mind that you can um, then, produce something <laughs> edible and pleasing from. Uh, and yeah, it's all important, but there aren't any tricks or tips. And I think when I'm teaching about writing, whether in the classroom or at a conference, probably the, the biggest thing I'm trying to get people's mind around is respect for the process. Um, I think, you know, even as, even as, readers or aspiring writers, we just see the end product and have no idea what's required to go into that for, for most of us. And so I think that's where the blinders have to uh, come off. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of that gets to the idea the substance of what you're writing, at least in my opinion, is always going to be the most important thing brought to the table, even though it's the exact opposite when you often speak to people about writing. I mean, usually you want people want to hear 
what do I put into a query letter or do I address an editor by the first name or last name or, you know, all of these things like this that, that only circle the idea, the, the thing that you want to say. That's not to say, I do think, I do think there's a legitimate and delightful body of work that the manner in which the thing is being said is just as important as the substance, so to speak. So I don't mean to promote some form of like didacticism. Um, but even then you would have to know that, you know, if you're writing Jabberwocky or whatever, like you've got to know that that's what you're trying to do. And your idea, that's still the substance of your idea is the execution. Yeah. I think, I think all that is super interesting, if not a little scary. I think, I think as Americans, we want to know like lists of things we can do to improve ourselves um, dramatically. And usually it's not, it's not as exciting to be like, well, just go farm for like 30 years and then see if you can cultivate uh, something worth saying uh, in, a, in a delightful manner in which to say it. Yeah, I, I often have students come to me and say, you know, I want, I want to do what you're doing. I want to be like you. How do I do that? And so I will often, the first thing I will say to them is, well, if you want to be like me, don't publish your first book until you're 47. And then the 22-year-old's jaw drops to the floor. <laughs> They look at what I am now and what I've done and don't realize how long that it took to get there. And I'm just, you know, a, a small potato, mediocre, you know, writer. <laughs> so. Right. Well, so what's interesting to me, the right there wasn't meant to imply that yes, you are right. small potato. Um, <laughs> what's interesting to me, and I've thought about this a lot lately. I, I don't know why I'm like giving you my thought log here, but um, there's an understanding in the world of athletics about process and hard work and dedication and excellence that often only receives lip service in other places and it'll be devoid of the process. And I don't really know where that breakdown is. You know, Kobe Bryant is famous for how hard he worked, just, you know, a relentless worker or Nick Saban or whoever, this big, you know, famous coach will be famous for never taking a day off. And, you know, everything's about the little details and every meeting is perfect. And, I don't know why we can't transfer some of that over into our other, and I don't just mean ministry, even in our creative lives, which is the context of, of your comment, um, why it's harder for us to bring over this idea that there's going to be years of labor that goes into this. And that, um, and maybe this is some of the negative workaholism that can creep in, but there's a truism in sports that, you know, every day you're not practicing or you're not shooting your free throws or whatever, somebody else is, and they're getting better than you. And there's probably a billion negative ways you could apply that. But I think I think when it comes to some things like writing, for particularly the young writers, they would benefit from some of that. That I mean, you have to work to get better at it. There's, <laughs> there's not just a plug and play application. This is so helpful. I don't know sports at all, but I use the sports metaphor all the time when I'm teaching. You know, because I know that much. What you just described is that it just takes you know the hours that you have to put in is is just the. I mean, the, there's the native talent part, um, but. If you don't put the hours in, then um, you're never going to be successful at any level. So, you know, I want to blame the romantics when it comes to this problem in creativity. You know, there just is this myth that um, creativity is something that comes through inspiration and it just appears. And so we are either inspired or not. And, you know, Wordsworth's famous definition of poetry as being the spontaneous overflow of emotion. Um, it makes it sound, you know, of course, it, it, Wordsworth certainly did treat poetry like a craft, but the myth and the illusion is there that it was not crafted. And so that romantic myth just continues to haunt us, especially in areas of creati creativity. And there is, of course, an influence that's 
long and worth many books uh, of romanticism on um, certain strains of Christianity and ministry. And so I think that's a that's another part of it as well. But uh, we certainly can learn a lot from those sports metaphors about the creative life, I think. Yeah, I sent. Um, so it's a big thing in the football world and it might be other sports, but I pay a little more attention just because of I'm from North Florida and, you know, football is king in that area. There's a big thing in sports. You hear coaches talking about it all the time, about winning like every moment of the day. So you don't just want to win on, say, Sundays or Saturdays, but you want to win in this meeting. You know, how can you have the best meeting you could possibly have or take the best notes or ask the best question or these kind of things? And again, some of that, I think, is just media sound bites that blah, who cares? I found myself more and more sending um, like YouTube clips of these coach interviews to people in other spaces where I'm interacting and being like, if we could have a meeting that would just get close to this instead of this wandering Zoom call that we get off of and nobody knows anything about what we're trying to get to. Uh, we would be a lot better. Um, or to uh, certain editors on our magazine staff or or in other projects, you know, if you would just bring this level of like today, proofing this draft, I'm going to crush it. I'm going to be better than I was proofing a draft yesterday. And like, that'll make us so much better in like a month when we go to, pr- to layout or, you know, these kind of things. And uh, yeah, there's a lot there that, and maybe it's just this like jockish impulse that I have to want to pull those worlds together. But I do think there's worlds in which we have a, better grasp of how much work goes into to a product, especially in a space where there's um, a mix of talent and work ethic that probably comes to bear on those who are going to do really good work. I think cooking is probably another one where you could apply some of those analogies. So I'm a big fan of your memoir, uh, Booked. In that first chapter where you deal with Milton, you talk about his idea of promiscuous reading, which just really resonates um, with me. So for the purposes of this conversation, can you describe that? Like what what is promiscuous reading? Yeah, it's interesting because when I was writing booked over a decade ago and teaching in a conservative evangelical environment, um, at that time, there was much more nervousness about reading widely and reading books outside our beliefs. Um, and so I really wanted to encourage my students and and their parents to about the values of, of, of reading widely and, and, and the confidence that can come from being willing to engage with ideas uh, that oppose our own. And so I actually um, learned in grad school about Milton's tract Areopagitica. I mean, most people know John Milton as the author of, of Paradise Lost and a lot of other poems, but they may not know about this political pamphlet among many other political pamphlets that he published in the, in the, uh, the 17th century. And here's John Milton, who is a conservative Puritan living and writing in a time when if you're on the wrong side of any particular issue, reading the wrong things, even writing and publishing the wrong things, you could literally be killed for it. And he is arguing to his own people who are also fellow Puritans who have just come into power after beheading you know, the king. Uh, he's telling them to not require published works to be licensed by the government before being published. Um, this is actually the foundation that we have in America for the free press. But here, here's a person who, in his conservative Christian religious terms, is arguing for reading widely. And he talks about, he uses the phrase, books promiscuously read, drawing on sort of the original meaning of the word promiscuous, which is like inter, is 
mixing, immoderate mixing, uh, or eclectic, eclectic mixing, we might say. And so that's the imagery and the work that I borrow from in making this argument about reading promiscuously, read far beyond our own tribe, read, read opposing ideas, read slightly different ideas, and, and not just in terms of the content of books, but even the genre or the form. So if you're a nonfiction reader, read more fiction. If you read a lot of fiction, read some theology and philosophy and read works by people that um, have different beliefs from you. So how programmatic is that idea for you? Or on the flip side, I guess, how much just based on whim is that? How do you cultivate a promiscuous reading diet? I know a lot of people are very programmatic and they write lists and they have, and apparently Goodreads is used that way, or they have, they count the number of books they read. My reading is just so unorganized and so unprogrammatic um, because of my personality and because of my lifestyle and because of my work. So if I'm writing something, then I have a bunch of books that I'm reading for research. If I'm teaching something, then I'm rereading something or, you know, reading additional works about what I'm teaching. And then last and very least, sadly, is my pleasure reading, which is completely on a whim. And I don't get to do throughout the year. I usually, during the semester, I'm, I'm not doing that. But I just, I mean, I have literally piles of books all over the place and they aren't organized. I actually wish I could just get my own shelves organized. That would be a great start. But um, I am the wrong person to talk to about being programmatic. Um, but if it helps people, um, I have heard people talk about using Goodreads in that way to kind of keep track of or a commonplace books. I, I, I wish I were that organized a person, but I'm not. I just read a lot. I'm wondering if, if you read and find yourself going down a rabbit hole, and to use the Austin example, if you're reading a ton of white authors about white people in a predominantly white culture, is there any kind of internal alarm that says, oh, I should go read some other perspective here? Or or how do, I guess how does that play out? Because I'm, so I'm a full subscriber to, I mean, I think it's not even just his, but, you know, Lewis wrote about it. And then Al Jacobs wrote recent, more recently, um, I think in the pleasures of reading in an age of distraction about reading at whim. And I'm all about that. And my, my own diet generally follows that there's occasionally often some books I'll work in because I feel like I need to have read those books, but by and large, it's just interest. Um, but, but I do wonder that too, like how, are there boundaries that need to be put on whim or not? I don't necessarily have an opinion. So that's, I wouldn't, uh, equate unprogrammatic with, entirely whimsical. Um, so I do uh, make goals, not not like I write them down or they're numerical, but just like, oh, I need to read, I'll see, you know, a new bestseller by a minority author and make a mental note or put in my Amazon, like, oh, I need to read this book, you know, because I should and because I want to. Uh, or if I'm doing research, then of course I am, you know, I'm following footnotes and following the criticism and, and so reading other books. So our whims are actually ingrained, I think, right? We sort of, and so because my specialty is, as I said before, 18th century British literature, it's very dead, very white, very male. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so, um, so, of course, I'm in that groove and my, what I might consider to be my whims, if they don't have to follow that course, are just going to go in, in certain directions. So I do need to be intentional about widening my reading 
which is part, again, getting back to promiscuous reading, it, it, it's relative, to, I guess, to what we already tend to do. Uh, and so I do think that that's, that's important. Um, you know, so in terms of my own, the, the works and the kinds of authors I'm familiar with, I do make an effort to stretch myself and challenge myself. Uh, you know, C.S. Lewis talked about reading one old book for every three or four new books or something. For me, it's the opposite because I tend to read more old, older books. So I try to read newer things. I try to read something science fiction because I hate science fiction just to stretch myself. So there is intentionality because my intention is to truly read promiscuously. So therefore I have to um, go beyond my whims and my natural inclinations. Yeah, no, I think that's helpful. I think um, I've wondered about that even in terms of if reading at whim is a baseline related inextricably, I think from taste, but of course taste is something not only that can improve, but I think should improve. I think we want to get better at reading um, in the same way we want to move people from uh, I don't know, uh, a hamburger helper to uh, handmade pasta or something. Um, you cultivate and, it, and right? And even cultivate, yeah. Do you mind sharing what you're reading now? Like, what is, what's reading life look like for you these days? Um, well, I am doing uh, some research for my next book proposal. So I'm reading a lot about um, metaphor and I'm reading um, Owen Barfield's Poetic Diction, which I've all these years I've not gotten around to. So that's sort of my um, my research reading right now. And I, for fun, I am actually about halfway through Susanna Clark's um, Paranisi. I don't know how to say it. Is that the new one? Yeah, it's a new one. It's it's really it's fascinating. I'm really enjoying it. I have. Um... Is it Mr. Gnarl and Dr. Strange or Mr. Something like that. I have never read that one. I have that one on my shelf. It came recommended to me from two separate people who said they read it and it became their favorite novel. And so I bought it and it's sitting on a shelf. Karen Swallow Pryor is a professor and the author of three books. You should check them all out, but if you're just going to read one, I recommend Booked, Literature and the Soul of Me, which she published in 2012. I'll write some more about Karen in our newsletter, to which you can subscribe at writersandwritings.com. Our show is made with a huge assist from our friends at Sound On Studios. And just so I can say Writers and Writings one more time in a 45-second clip, this is Writers and Writings, and I'm Aaron Klein-Hambury. <laughs>